Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, Vincent Price, all on screen, but not together. Ah, there's the rub. This is Amicus 1970 movie Scream and Scream Again. I watched it. I'm still not sure what it's about. But let's see if we can pick it apart together. When Scream and Scream Again was released in 1970, it was a bit of a head-scratcher for critics. Some liked it, some weren't so sure at all, but it's become a sort of cult classic for horror aficionados. And it's a really interesting movie because it's really well done. It has an assurance and a kind of um, easy way with it. There are some really good performances in this movie and it does something that other movies don't seem to do. You see, most movies would have a main plot line and a subplot. In fact, sometimes several subplots. What this movie does is it has a main plot, another main plot, and then another main plot, just for good luck. And the reason why most movies don't do that is because it's really confusing. So the three main plots here are this, or thus. There's a country which is under martial law. People marching about in vaguely fascistic all-black uniforms with an emblem and insignia which looks vaguely swastika-like. There's a checkpoint. People have to present papers. They get shot if they haven't got them. There's one plot line. Oh, and part of that plot line is that the mirror image of this is that in England there is a ministry that is doing that is uh, uh, that, that is running against this martial law and that's helmed by Christopher Lee. There's the first of your big names. And in this plot line there is a general who seems a little bit more sensitive than some of the other fascistic generals and that's Peter Cushing name two for your big names another plot line and we see this person running in the credits and the music is um, assuring, assuringly 70s funky he's running in one of those um, early 1970s Athletics Olympic garb. And the same gentleman wakes up in a hospital bed, looks down, screams, one of his limbs is missing, his arm. And throughout the early part of the film, every time he wakes up, another limb or another appendage seems to be missing. Not that kind of appendage, that's Percy. But you know, it's quite frightening. And it's the stuff of nightmares for some people. So he is involved in the second strand. And it seems that this, these are experiments being created by Dr. Browning, played by Vincent Price. Ah, there's your third big name. But wait, two plots isn't enough. There is a third strand 
in which women are turning up dead with bite marks, puncture marks. So there's a, a vaguely vampiric third strand. It's as if they are saying to us, you can have a two-for-one deal here, or even more, a three-for-one deal. Pick your plot and stick with it. Only you can't, can you? Because the movie is encompassing all of those, and they seem incredibly disparate. But what they try to do is, they try to bring those plot strands all together. So, the denouement of this film takes place in Dr. Browning's medical facility. We've already tried to push two plot strands together by saying that the um, the gentleman who is killing the women is an experiment created by Dr. Browning. So plots three and two are now together. What they then do is just have someone from plot one turning up. And Dr. Browning, not really sure who that person is, but he's here, so hang on, all the plot strands are coming together. It's like trying to shove a duvet into an egg cup. There are bits hanging about all over the place. There are corners that you that, that, you, that are unresolved. Things like, why is that country under martial law? Why is there someone called Conrads who is allowed to go rogue and is killing people? It seems as if he's just a power broker, but it's never really explained. Why is he talking to Christopher Lee and doing deals with him by the lions in Trafalgar Square? What is Vincent Price up to? Who is the Superman who's been killing women? How has he been allowed to roam free? All these and other and other plot twists will not be resolved in this movie. And it's such a shame because, you know, it's actually really well done. It's Amicus with AIP, American International Pictures, so there's money there. And it has a real assurance well, when it's, direct, it's, it's directed by Gordon Hessler, who did quite a lot of work for AIP. And it had uh, a late rewrite, apparently, by Christopher Wicking. It comes from the book The Disorientated Man by Peter Saxon. And it needed, apparently, a rewrite. And there are some really nice performances here. Apart from the, the top three names, you've got Vincent Price, who's doing a very uh, wistful, sweet performance with a lot of naivete. He has good reasons why he is cutting people up and putting them back together in a Dr. Frankenstein-type way. It's for the good of society. I don't understand why. And I don't think it's mentioned. But it's for the good of society. I may have missed it, but I don't think so. You've got Peter Cushing, who's only in one scene, sadly. Who is um, speaking to the rogue officer. About how he can't be killing people, well, torturing people, until they die. You've got Christopher Lee, who's his usual imperious, I will make decisions and brook no dissent type way. Does that very well. Great. 
um, performance in the Devil Rides About a bit as the Duke de Richelieu. And of course, he's head of his department, so he can do what he wants. Apart from once when he gets a, a phone call from someone higher up and his face falls, it's very nice. And there are some really nice subsidiary performances here, particularly an actor who I never really rated, Alfred Marx, who plays the inspector who's um, on the case of all the women who keep turning up dead. He's Superintendent Bellamer. And he plays it in a very boorish, world-weary way. He goes to see one of the, the bodies being, being uh, examined and there is um, the young Dr. Dr. Sorrell there, who is Mortician's assistant, if you like, scrubbing up. And he tells him, I wouldn't bother, Doctor. Once you've encountered this sort of stuff, it never leaves you. And he wears that kind of world weariness, that kind of feeling, like a heavy overcoat. He's good at the gags, too. There is a lovely moment when he goes back to the station and he picks up a sandwich and says, Oh, it smells like chicken. Looks like... Looks like ham. And then bites it and says, Oh, jeez. It's an old gag. But he can do it because he is an old gag man. And it's a really nice performance. Plus, you know, there are people who pop up here. Julian Holloway is in there. We've got Jutta Stensgaard in a very short scene. And Peter Salis is dispatched far too early. He is dispatched... By, um, by the rogue agent, Conrad's, with a kind of nerve hold. Yes, he's, that's his special skill. He just clamps onto your shoulder and you die. It's a good skill to have, but that's on his CV. And he dispatches Peter Cushing with that and Alfred Marx as well in a very nice death scene because it involves a blood capsule spat out very nicely by Marx. Also in here... Christopher Matthews as Dr. Sorrell, sandy-haired Dr. Sorrell, who will pop up again in Hammer's 1970s Scars of Dracula, playing a kind of avuncular ne'er-do-well, and then not be seen very much again after that. Plus, playing the Superman vampire-type character, Keith. Please, don't call him Keith. He's supposed to be quite scary. As Michael Gothard, who... Um, didn't do much, but also is uh, is seen in the James Bond movie For Your Eyes Only as the assassin. And has a kind of dead-eyed, um, expressionless look. Very, very similar to Malcolm McDowell, but he has that because he has no life and has no memories. He's been created by Dr. Browning, of course. Doesn't play it in a, like an automaton. He plays it like someone who has broken out of that and it's living for kicks. And there is a lovely set piece involving him in which he's caught in a honey trap uh, with, with a young uh, policewoman who gets into trouble with Dr. Browning later on and he's captured. More on that later. Jumps in his um, open top sports car, very nice. And he's chased by the cops through the streets, weaving in and out of traffic, lovely car chase. Then through a, um, a, a quarry while he's on the run and they eventually overpower him because of course he's got super strength and they handcuff him to a car bumper but he gets away why? 
he gnaws off his own hand and sets off running again. And again, and again, and they keep running with the cries of, he's getting tired. Yeah, well, so are we. This is about 20 minutes, and it's a real centerpiece of him trying to get away from us or trying to get away from the police. Eventually, they don't even catch him. He falls into a vat of Dr. Browning's special acid because only doctors have special acid. So there are some really nice moments in this, but it's just so confused. Eventually they try and tie it all up, but it's, it's not a very nice knot. It doesn't look very good, but at least it's tied up in Dr. Browning's medical facility, in which he has a vat of his special acid. It's just there, uncovered. Health and safety, mate, come on. And you know someone's going to go in there. And it happens to be the rogue officer, Conrads, who turns up and, and tells um, Vincent Price, Dr. Browning, that he's involved in their work and it, it crosses over. Does it? Not sure where, but they have a fight and Browning powers out of the nerve hold. Conrad's must have been furious and of course finally ends up in the acid, allowing sandy-haired Dr. Sopel to leave with his love interest, the young female police officer, on the steps of the rather nice manor house, they bump into Christopher Lee. What are you doing here? We don't know. He turns up and proceeds to do the same thing that Conrad's did. Tells Vincent Price, who is very sweetly opining that you want my learning for horrible, nefarious reasons and I want to help humanity. They then have a fight and Vincent Price allows Christopher Lee seemingly to dunk him into the acid. Come on mate, put up a bit of a fight. And we end with all three of them in a car. Sopal asking Christopher Lee's character, is it all over sir? And him saying, no, I think it's just starting. And they're all smiling and driving off. Cue credits. What? I really don't know. I might have been tired when I saw this. I might have missed something. I might have fallen asleep in the middle of it. I don't think so. It's really overstuffed, this. It's a quart into a pint pot. Three strong plot strains. Which they're supposed to come together cleverly in the end, but they don't. Just put all those characters into, into one plot and say, Ah, I've come here because of your work. I don't know who you are. Never mind that. <laughs> it just doesn't work. And Christopher Lee did say that um, in the original script, there was a, re a revelation that, that they were supposed to be aliens, but that was cut out. Well, I'm not sure if you revealed that certain characters were aliens, whether that would resolve anything for me, make anything clear or just make it a little bit harder to understand. Probably the latter. And yet there are some lovely moments here. It's really well directed, so it, it barrels along. There's barely a moment where you think, oh, nothing's happening. In fact, too much is happening. And there are some lovely performances here. 
but it gets a three and a half out of five ramble rating because when you're talking about scream and scream again, I wanted to scream at the screen. Stop doing this and give us something simpler. And there will be simpler Amicus films that we can have a look at. In the meantime, I'm going to go and lie down in a quiet room. Ta-ta.